From Yale University, welcome to Tech Empire. Today we welcome Mishi Chowdhury, a technology lawyer and online civil liberties activist working in the United States and India. Mishi is the legal director at the Software Freedom Law Center in the U.S. and the founder of the Software Freedom Law Center in India. Mishi's clients include Debian, the Apache Software Foundation, and OpenSSL. Mishi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. Okay, uh, today we're going to cover issues of privacy, regulation, adhar, free software, and more. But before we dig in, uh, Mishi, how did you get started in technology politics? For example, did you grow up using computers, and what brought you into the free software world? Um, I grew up in India. Uh, I was saying, uh, I, uh, computers were a big part of my education. Um, and I didn't pursue a degree in computer science or anything, but uh, the first time I interacted with the Free Software Foundation, which is where a lot of political philosophy behind open source, uh, etc., is where I learned was as a lawyer when I was practicing. And then I was studying in Europe, um, and I met Professor Eben Moglen, who introduced me to um, the politics around technology. I worked with him and moved to the U.S., and there um, I learned a lot about Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, and uh, that got me thinking that there wasn't any such thing in India. And with 1.25 billion people, uh, it would need some organization which is going to work for the public and not just for the companies. And so during 2008 and nine, I raised some funding and in 2010, um, SFLC India was born. And that's uh, since then, we've been doing a lot of work around technology policy. So um, very simple, just to work and learning from other people is how I got into all of this. All right. So I see that the SFLC in India has quite a reputation. And I know that, that you've done things on, for example, internet shutdowns. You have a website for that? Um, yes, a tracker, uh, which uh, was the first of its kind in the world. Um, we started tracking internet shutdowns in 2012, but that time uh, it wasn't a much big deal. There were perhaps two or three shutdowns in an entire year. Um, however, in, starting in about 2015 uh, and 16, we started seeing a spike in it. Um, but uh, a lot of words just written about is not very interesting. And I, um, then we worked on a project which made a, a visual map uh, in a large country and to record where shutdowns were happening and also collecting stories about how people were being impacted by these shutdowns. So we started the project um, and uh, then we uh, put out the code for it on GitHub uh, uh, for anyone to download. And uh, a lot of other countries also use the code to develop their own trackers. Now, unfortunately, the number of shutdowns um, are really high. Uh, India is the number one in the world with the number of internet shutdowns that have happened in the year 2018. So it's a popular project. Um, not that I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the project, but I wish we didn't have to do it. So... 
Yeah. Uh, that's uh, uh, it's it's still on, but uh, let's see what's go what comes out of it. Considering India is um, touting projects like Digital India and everything is moving online, I wish there were not any shutdowns for any reason, but that's not the case. Yeah, so you mentioned digital India, and that's something if you read the tech press in India, you'll you'll see a lot about. Now, you work on issues of software freedom, and mm-hmm. free software is a, is a big part of that. The mm-hmm. Indian government has a what appears to be something of a, a free software policy preference for use in, in government yep. organizations. We also have that elsewhere in the world uh, where I do my research in South Africa. We passed one in, in 2007. And at the same time, at least in South Africa, implementation hasn't been forthcoming. So it's kind of a a, a paper policy. How do you see digital India and what are the linkages to uh, free and open source? The policy, of course, was uh, a a big watershed uh, moment for us, mostly because um, unlike many other places, we were not, the policy did not say that, oh, yeah, there will be just a preference, but it talked about making it mandatory for e-governance projects, um, which was a big difference between how um, a lot of uh, governments approached free software. And I think the policy mostly was recording what was already happening in different parts of the government. Um, there was vast usage of FOSS, uh, in the government, but as always happens, um, nobody really knows that uh, the use is happening because FOSS is not usually procured like proprietary software is procured. So, uh, but over the years, there had been a big political movement and also a recognition that um, the government, that uh, it, the other departments of the government, which could not. Uh, which had funding constraints or some other kind of constraints had already adopted FOSS, tweaked it to suit their own purposes. And there are 28 states in India, 18 scheduled languages, and every place, can, every state government or every department cannot afford to pay high prices for software. So a lot of uh, government officials have themselves used it. And then uh, this was articulation of the policy. However, um, the framework uh, makes lofty uh, claims. It talks about it, but we have not seen that um, it's actually put into practice. What I would say is that a lot, what is already being used, continues to get used. Um, but the uh, And uh, whenever the government is contracting um, it to out to private parties. The private parties, for their own benefits, are using a lot of FOSS. But we cannot, we don't see um, that every e-governance project is actually making it its first choice, and uh, and there aren't enough explanations given when proprietary software is chosen over FOSS. Uh, but uh, having said that. Um, I don't think in today's world any kind of a tech boom happens in any country uh, unless they are relying on FOSS. It's cheap raw materials. It's a great quality software. So in the last five or six years, we've seen a complete overhaul in the way private parties have been approaching FOSS. 
there has been more vigilance about FOSS. There's been definitely more interest. Um, but we are still talking about usage more of FOSS and not so much of contribution. Other than two or three states, uh, Kerala, Karnataka, which are also having their own government-based projects. Um, Kerala is a state of 31 million people. And that state um, schools, high schools, and also the government completely runs on FOSS. So it's a great example, which can be used in other states. But unfortunately, um, that hasn't been the case. And Digital India has other issues to deal with than just this. Um, you talked about that you were interested in Aadhaar and internet shutdowns. So considering what all is on their plate, this has just now been relegated into a nice policy which looks good um, on paper. But the implementation is, um, uh, the gap between implementation and the policy is still pretty wide. Yeah, so free software has always been something of a confusing term for people because the free is uh, meant to refer to freedom, right? And uh, yep. But also free is in freedom, but not as in price. But then because it's it gives you so many freedoms, you can copy and share for free. And so it winds up being free as in price, which winds up being an advantage to it. So that makes it more confusing. But it's obviously, it's <laughs> it's about the liberties that, that are given and then price is a secondary concern. Now, when free software was developed, and if we're going back to Richard Stallman in the 1980s, the the end user was pretty much on a single device where the com- computing was primarily inside your own device. And since then, we've seen the rise of the cloud and, and centralization in, in the cloud. So when your organization is looking at your philosophy of, of digital India, you have the free software. But there's a broader range and and, and a broader philosophy there that distinguishes it from just a simple open source ideology because we know that uh, uh, corporations, governments, whoever, third parties can use free software themselves, but it's not necessarily a a victory for freedom. So how do you conceptualize what you would call the free software movement in in your organization in India in relation to digital India? Ah, that's a very interesting question. I, I think you're right about the fact that we made free and open source software. And everybody thought that this was just a big tiff between Stallman insisting on some lofty philosophical political ideas, and then there was open source on one side. The interesting bit about um, uh, my coming to free software was that in India, free software became first as a political movement, embraced by the left parties. And thereafter, it got, um, obviously in the tech circles, it was still big, but 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 the catching up of um, uh, a lot of larger public was first about philosophy and then about the technical benefits, which turns it uh, in a very different direction in how I have seen it in the U.S., and because um, it was a lot about equality and um, the fortunate thing, because there's so many languages in India, that there, is, there are special words which can talk about liberty and not to confuse the free as in freedom uh, or free as in free beer. And those terms did um, uh, inform a lot of us who grew up on this. And, um, and that's why um, it was a lot about autonomy and liberty 
and having your own control over the devices. Now, we did see that the millennial brought the successes of the likes of Google and Facebook, which would not exist if there was no open source software. And they have uh, exactly done what Stallman would say uh, he had thought about, that uh, open source, just saying code is open for everybody is not going to guarantee why he thinks uh, free and open source, what it does, which is giving the users the rights. So um, today when we do, uh, FLC's motto in India is defender of your digital freedom. When we say that, we know that the free software movement has now given way to the larger internet freedom movement. And uh, uh, if there is no freedom in the internet, then all this talk that we've had about uh, in the past, about civil liberties in the 20th century, or about software, all that's gonna just stay the talk. Uh, we've all, we all understand that the basic blocks of internet um, are made of open source, but uh, that sliver of philosophy has to now expand to larger things like the internet freedom movement. Um, so for us, there is a, it's, it's just an extension of the same thing. What we are trying to say is we, the users, need autonomy. And uh, we, the users, need control over what uh, is being done to us. And if we use internet and uh, everything is offered to us free in exchange for our data, um, then it should be up to us to decide um, whether we want that or we don't want that. That control always has to be uh, with the user. And um, it, it's also a lot about that the user gets not only to make uh, a choice, but an informed choice. Um, and then we can have, uh, and this is not only in the market terms that there is choice, that I can just choose some other products, but it's also about that all products are not just limiting or taking away from my freedom. Um, the way internet is today being done, which is corporate surveillance, um, and um, all in favor of centralization, um, which is completely antithesis to how internet was built in the very beginning. Um, we, we do think that to restore that freedom, to give the control back to the user herself um, was why free software movement was started. And now just free software movement has more heavy lifting to do um, uh, and to make sure that the larger internet movement also um, gives the control back to uh, the user. Um, the, the logo of the Software Freedom Law Center in the United States is uh, the control key on your keyboard, but instead of the control, it says FRDM, which is freedom. And that's exactly what we all endeavor to do. Yeah, so in terms of, let's say, having control over your technology, there's some aspects of this conversation that I think I think some of that uh, discussion has been lost. And with the introduction of regulation, at the same time, we know that we need both, right? And so there's certain mm -hmm. forms of surveillance that are occurring in the network that there's no easy, immediate, or even in sometimes long-term pure 
technology redesign solutions uh, for us. So in 2014, your Software Freedom Law Center released a report titled India's Surveillance State. And this brought attention to Indian legislation, which, among other things, requires telecommunication providers to install unspecified surveillance equipment when required by government and its agents, that there is lawful interception and monitoring equipment installed into India's telephone and internet networks, that other systems are being built to extend government surveillance capabilities, including a project called the Central Monitoring System, an artificial intelligence-based program uh, called Network Traffic Analysis, and a national intelligence grid that will collate, at the time of writing, 21 government databases, share them with intelligence agencies, and perform big data analytics. Uh, This is in addition Mm -hmm. to lawful interception equipment that appears to have mass interception capabilities. In 2017, in an unanimous judgment, India's Supreme Court upheld the right to privacy as a fundamental right. What is the status of these systems that, that, that you reported on in 2014, and how does the Supreme Court's ruling affect the government's ability to conduct those surveillance programs? Um, so uh, that's a great question. What has happened is that um, since 2014, there hasn't been much discussion on the central monitoring system or the network traffic analysis and the national intelligence grid. They were at that time uh, in varying stages of deployment. And what happens is government of India is known to outsource its surveillance initiatives to private third parties and uh, which go to do whatever notorious things they do. Um, A lot of this information is not out in the public domain. And there is a Right to Information Act, which India has, but it has an exception that uh, something which is in uh, interest of national security, if they don't want to release any information, they don't release any information. Now, what has happened is that not nothing has been provided on the on the uh, uh, on the stage that various these um, um, databases or whatever the capability enhancing technologies they're building for surveillance at what state they are what exactly is being done by them however in addition to all this is and and then you asked about the privacy judgment now, the privacy judgment actually comes out of uh, challenging of the India's unique identification system, which is based on biometrics, Aadhaar. Um, this case was filed in 2012. SFLC board members were also petitioners in the case. And, be- and because it has been pending for so long, it's only um, after almost almost five five and a half years that the judgment came. Now, what ideally that should happen is that uh, after that right has been established, there will be these various systems which can be challenged based on that right. But considering there's not much information, and we are still trying to get more information about these various systems, there isn't much that we can go to the court and say, hey, you gave us a right to privacy, but nobody has talked about what the state surveillance system is doing. And why don't you do something about it? And considering what principles you laid out here, all these systems will be unconstitutional and you should order that these must be broken down. That hasn't happened at all. There's no legal development which has taken place so far on that front. In addition to that, 
um, we uh, we know that the telecom services, the ISPs, um, always are under a license when they get the spectrum. And those license terms are pretty burdensome and always have a catch-all phrase about and term about that in favor of national security. If the government asks you to get any kind of interception devices or it wants assistance with interception, you must do it. Now, that's why the ISPs will always just raise their hands and say, look, we have to operate as a business. And the terms of our license is that we will have to assist the government with all of this. So what are you talking? Don't talk to us. Go away. And also because one of the terms of the license itself tells you that these have to be uh, secret and you cannot go and reveal them, they will be flouting the law if they ever gave up any information on that. Now, it also means uh, and it also says that if the ISPs fail to comply with what the government is asking them, they may result in imprisonment for up to seven years and a lot of fines. Right, so, so it's... Uh, the law is made to assist surveillance, and um, the Supreme Court has said something, but nobody has challenged it based on saying, hey, now we have a right, all these laws should go away. So we will see what comes out of it. Yeah, and, and you know, these a lot of laws that are being passed seem to have loopholes built into them or uh, vague terms that allow various practices to continue going on. In India, recently there there was a draft personal data protection bill. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is uh, going back to July, and it would extend fiduciary duties to data collected about Indian citizens. And mm-hmm. um, here at the Yale ISP, I, I, I saw the head of the ISP, uh, Jack Balkan's information fiduciary proposal um, cited mm-hmm. on what they're calling in India data fiduciaries. Um, so mm-hmm. according to information fiduciary, the fiduciary proposal, those who collect your data have duties of care and duties of loyalty. And in Jack's paper, he calls for similar duties of good faith in non-manipulation. Um, so that would be uh, be trustworthy, don't be a con artist, keep data confidential, treat your, your data subjects with care. What do you think about data fiduciaries um, as a, a proposal to protect privacy in India? So, um, in, uh, now, um, by September 10th, the ministry, which has issued this draft personal data protection bill, wants more comments. In fact, as we speak today, we held a roundtable um, in India Uh, with a lot of stakeholders, around 50 of those major stakeholders, including the government and the companies, to ask about what did they think about the various proposals. So there were three tracks in it, and the first track did talk about data principles and data fiduciaries. I personally think it is fine if you want to have the principles of data fiduciaries, but when you have principles like this, or you use terms like fiduciaries, and you said there is duty of care, then there also... Um, has to be a buy-in from the people who are going to be uh, given the responsibility of acting as fiduciaries. Now, that is a big responsibility. When you have duty of care, then that also means 
that you are supposed to be responsible and your own business practices actually run contrary to what these duties are being imposed on you right. so i do not know how they are reconciling that i am a data fiduciary but my business is collecting data about you and then monetizing it in one way or the other that now includes isps isps are uh, in fact entities to whom we pay for surveillance when google conducts surveillance on me or facebook conducts surveillance on me there are two important points of distinction a i can actually choose not to use google or facebook although in the real world i understand that the market has failed us and there are not many good options but there's still options um i can choose like i don't have a facebook account um so i can choose not to use those services. that's true but at the same time google is and facebook are tracking people across the web even if they're not members so it's kind of like saying don't use the world wide web right don't use an android phone right because they have surveillance technologies built into the android phone as well yeah and they're making it tougher and tougher for us to actually be uh, private in that sense if you have an android phone as you rightly said you will have to go through a lot of steps tour is a little slow vnc i mean vpns work but they're still slow not everybody uses this i totally agree with you i i will i'm not saying that all that is correct all i'm saying is compared to isps um yeah. i don't have yeah. to pay for google services but to an isp i pay for how much data i use yet they are one party which are not actually as regulated in terms of the data they are collecting and now enough isps inject advertisement collect data and do exactly the kind of surveillance that a platform company like google or facebook does so uh we're just talking about different kinds of how to be evil about it i'm not saying any of this is acceptable yeah. so um what i would say is in terms of, in terms i i think that at least in the data protection bill which has come out of india the data fiduciary term itself they have not understood what the implication of the term would be and why will all these companies sign up to it i also don't understand that in a country where damages are not usually awarded in a legal case and cases drag on forever it may not actually be a big point that where uh, if it is assailed the companies might just say it's all right we'll become data fiduciaries what are they going to do they never award damages they're only threatening some kind of criminal liability so which will anyway run uh the case will go on for some time the civil case will go on some time and we will see what happens thereafter i personally think that instead of using confusing terms like this um this um my my view which i have published in some opinion pieces also is this data protection bill is ambitious but it is very much like every other bill i have seen in india where it has its own indigenous problems which is they always try to get the police involved at the lowest level where there's no understanding of technology they never have strict provisions about damages because if there were provisions about damages and also a provision about that duty to inform that everybody must be informed and then we would have created a, an ecosystem in which every party has a stake and some skin in the game yeah um, but so what they does is that it copies something from gdpr it tries to copy something from the uk from the us then it tries to put its own three four things about india 
It says nothing about surveillance by the state. It says state can do whatever it likes. It says not enough about Aadhaar. And then it uh, it really is very, very much like most bills are written. Copy half the things from here and there, introduce four or five provisions which are typical of an Indian legislation, and then try to say, look, we try to go- get the path of the golden mean. And it pleases nobody because um, it's over-regulated, yet it never achieves the results, which is protection of the people. We are still talking about data protecting as if data needs protecting. We're not talking about how, as if I am a person and I have some issue, whether my data has been leaked or I need something taken down or my life has actually suffered, where is my redressal mechanism? I have nothing. Right. And I mean, let's get to Adhar in a second, but you had mentioned GDPR and GDPR emphasizes informed consent limitations on data storage, things like that. Yet we can already see that surveillance capitalism has continued along business as usual. So when we're looking at, say, GDPR, information fiduciaries, is this a case where basically the the global north or the west, if you have it, is thinking, passing bills, and countries in the global south are just tagging along? Do you think India should be forging ahead on its own path with stronger privacy protections than we're seeing in the North? So one of the things which I would like to say is that um, uh, we, we need to understand about one certain basic uh, um, structural and institutional mechanisms which already exist in the European Union, for example. Um, now, uh, because European Union is now relying so much about the data protection officers it will have or GDPR, what it does, it knows that it has some kind of a legal, some kind of legal institutions and mechanisms from which they can enforce the laws they have. That's point one. Second, there is um, a, a much larger emphasis on protecting the people from Europe in any case. And U.S. has a separate, different approach, which is not about people so much. It's more laissez-faire approach. Um, what I would say is that um, uh, there, in uh, the countries in the South, will mess. And and the third approach is, of course, the Chinese, the Russians. Um, the Iranians approach, which is um, internet should only be used to actually control people and nothing else. Um, now, countries like India or Brazil or other or in um, Africa or wherever, um, it's not a matter of choice that they have to have their own path. It's a compulsion because they're uh, placed very differently. Their realities are different. Um, their legal institutions don't work the same way as, for example, uh, in the EU, they will work. Our competition commission hasn't done anything. Um, for that matter, the Justice Department in the U.S. does not do much about um, uh, antitrust issues in, for, in Facebook buying, Instagram, everything, etc. But um, the European Commission does do all of this. Now, what I would say is that considering... Um, GDPR is something which is already a reality. Um, 
from India's point of view, and also because a lot of businesses in India do a lot of, um, uh, out, they have a lot of work outsourced to them from the European Union, and the businesses also deal with European customers. That's why <clears throat> uh, Indian firms have to be compliant with GDPR to the maximum extent possible. And also, because India is part of the global data economy, um, the firms are should be able to process the data of European Union citizens. They are already building all the necessary technical businesses, business and social processes to comply with GDPR. So um, it, it would be much better for India to have something which harmonizes the Indian data protection law with the GDPR in order to maximize the Indian firms and businesses access to the global data economy. It should, uh, I think they should directly engage with the European Commission and seek out what are the mutual opportunities to define this Euro-Indian global regime. And um, uh, But having said that, that, that harmonization would be welcome. Uh, we think it would be useful. Um, but uh, it is merely an operating requirement of the design and cannot be a primary objective. What is necessary is that um, uh, to achieve the goal uh, so that India can have some advancement in the digital economy, we will need something which is more like a GDPR plus, et cetera, uh, where Indian citizens' rights are protected. Um, GDPR assumes informed consent means something. Uh, U.S. healthcare already has something in informed consent. In India, this data protection law just makes uh, fetishizes with um, informed consent. And all it says is as if the most important thing was only to collect consent, process consent, take care of consent. That's not how things are done. Now, you and I both know how much have we read the terms and conditions of any app we have ever downloaded. Um, right. This is a whole scroll and I accept. And so the more uh, the more burdensome you make regulation, you don't serve anybody. So one of the problems, um, I think the Indian government sorely lacks uh, the adaptability. Uh, I understand the progress is at a dizzying pace right now, but especially Indian regulators and the government, how they have approached everything, um, it, it just demonstrates that the adaptability to the fast-paced environment is lacking. Um, we don't need burdensome regulations, but we need clarity in regulations. And what we need is protection of citizens. All this does is just an extension of the patriarchal attitude the government of India has always had, that state is supreme, it can do everything. The only people who need control are the people and the companies. And uh, let's give as many loopholes to the companies as we can and screw people. Right. And, and if, we're, if we're looking at something like, say, GDPR, I mean, the, I guess the second part of the question is keeping surveillance capital, uh, capitalism. The, the data protections that are in it are not, in reality, reducing the mass corporate surveillance practices, right? And so that's, mm -hmm. I guess, what leads me to the question of, you know, yeah, sure, India has to apply with GDPR, no doubt about it. Um, but at the same time, it's it's it, is there a way through law to say we're not going to be like 
the West. We're not going to do these kinds of things because this isn't actually beneficial to to society. Um, on the Adhar question, um, just just because of if you have a little response to that, but also let's let's start adding in the um, Adhar in the interest of time here. The Adhar system uh, assigns uh, each citizen a 12-digit number, and it links a photograph, fingerprints, iris scans to that number. Uh, it's said to improve the efficiency of social services, like welfare benefits, and it includes a know-your-customer feature that allows government agencies and private companies to download data such as name, gender, and date of birth from the Adhar database for authentication services. So that might be Paytm, Google Pay, uh, whatever. Privacy advocates have criticized the system. What are your thoughts, uh, you know, on on Adhar and and what should be done about that? I think Adhar, as my friend Sunil says, is a surveillance tech, um, and I completely agree. Uh, on paper, it looks very good. Um, it was touted as a panacea which would solve the problems of leakage in the public distribution schemes in India. Um, then, of course, um, um, a lot. What, what happens in India these days is that um, a lot of civil servants think uh, and have well-intentioned ideas, but they don't understand technology. Then some billionaire comes up and says, "Oh yeah, I know how you can build it," and uh, this is the Bangalore equivalent of Silicon Valley speak is that uh, we can solve all problems of the world with technology. And um, I myself um, have uh, written code and I work and hang out with great developers all the time. They are my clients. I love them. And uh, I do think engineers are, are great people. But like all of us, um, if we have not spent enough time thinking about how sociology, anthropology, uh, ideas of liberty, freedom are complicated ideas and humanity is not very simple. Um, this is not a Python program um, or this is not code that I can actually fix it or by, uh, it, it takes time. Um, uh, what, what has happened in Aadhaar's case was that uh, uh, some rich tech billionaires thought, oh yeah, we can solve all these problems just by technology. And uh, whatever is complicated, we can just uh, decide that's not important and we can shut it down and not listen to all of those people and make, uh, um, so, so, so they introduced the system. Despite um, the fact that it was only supposed to be voluntary and limited to very small schemes, if you, uh, if you did not have an identity in India, you could take this as an identification. I, as an Indian, have seven other forms of identity. So I don't, I don't need this identity. I still don't have it. I don't want to have it. I will never have it. Um, but what, what happened was that some people and they did not have any form of identification for all kinds of reasons. They didn't have a driver's license. They were not in the tax brackets. Um, they didn't have a passport or... Um, and those, it was supposed to cater to those very limited set of people. So the premise that the poorest of citizens has the most to gain from the efficiencies that a strong, fast, inexpensive identity authentication offers was correct. But it's marketing that the efficiencies can be achieved by creating one big vulnerable database containing more than 
uh, 1.25 billion people's biometric identity. It's just a shoddy effort to ignore the increasingly obvious flaws in the system. And I think um, it's defective by design because it's now a centralized database. It has everybody's data. Um, unlike many other places and many other systems where if um, there's a vulnerability in a system, most, whether there's companies or any other sane um, CISO will say, okay, somebody pointed us, pointed us to a vulnerability, let's fix it because we want a more robust system. In Aadhaar's case, what the government um, and, uh, uh, and the private parties who are now investing in uh, private companies who benefit from monetizing this data, uh, which is collected by the government, um, are telling everybody that anyone who points out any fault in Aadhaar is anti-national and should be just ignored. Yeah, and in, in I think, well, I think it was in July the 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 UIA, um, which manages the the database, uh, issued a bid for documents to contract agencies that will help them monitor news and social media coverage to identify detractors yeah. and influencers and run campaigns to neutralize the negative sentiments on social media. So they're very gung ho about this. Yeah, that's that's democracy for you these days. Uh, shoot the messenger because too many people's money is now invested. The system has become too big to fail. In fact, uh, what has happened is that um, uh, no reasonable evaluation of risks uh, incident to security compromising and identity data laws have occurred. And implausibly, their proponents have simply insisted that uh, this one data store, Aadhaar, will never be hacked or compromised. Despite, as I said, overwhelming evidence that no data system is permanently or successfully can resist such intrusion. Every day we get instances now of uh, 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 the robbing of identities, fake Aadhaar systems, uh, fake Aadhaar numbers being issued, um, and the flip-flopping of uh, from the government and UIDI is bizarre. Mr. Nandan Neelkeni, in fact, um, a big proponent of um, Aadhaar because he built it, has now gone with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And Mr. Gates, who has put in his money in the World Bank, is trying to take this broken system to the rest of the third world. I would really like to ask Mr. Gates, why hasn't he brought it to the United States and can fix everything which is wrong in this system as he thinks it can fix it in India or the other third world countries? That would be, there would be social resistance because people don't like in, <laughs> in the uh, North, they tend to be resistant to biometrics, although that's seeming to change with the uh, commercial applications of it. That's true. And also the fact that there would be just one centralized data uh, system which will talk to every other data set, like the Andhra Pradesh gov state government has now built. It has these data dashboards in which every database talks to the other database. And you can build a complete 360-degree profile of any person. Now, that will actually send the ACLU in hyperdrive in the United States. Everybody will start yelling and screaming about the Fourth Amendment and the Carpenter case of the Supreme Court. And because the, because the American citizens have always deserved more civil liberties and more rights than us in the third world. That's the same thing as Nikki Haley is telling Myanmar, oh, how dare you do anything for free press, while their own president called everybody 
who says anything about him fake news. So it's the usual moral high ground and hypocrisy of uh, billionaires from abroad uh, that the third world can be experimented. And uh, just like um, the, just like a lot of um, uh, clinical trials happen in our countries where the regulation is low, um, now the tech clinical trials are happening. And with the big money behind it in, in forms of foundation, it's being asked to be exported to countries like Africa or Southeast Asia or Latin America. Um, if, um, again, as I said, the premise is fine if you really want to work on the premise. But that did not mean that every Tom, Dick, and Harry and any app should be able to connect into a system of database, which is a government-managed identity database. And if it was working so fine, I don't know why the UIDI now says, oh, we can't actually authenticate everything. We will have to have facial recognition built into this. Yeah. So right. there's a yeah. <laughs> ever-moving goalpost yeah, about and- what it can and cannot do. <laughs> And on on those things, uh, it's interesting how things travel. Uh, fingerprinting, right, coming out of England, and uh, you had Francis Galton, and then in, in in developing these kinds of things, and um, also uh, British uh, police commissioners uh, going down to India, but then also coming over to South Africa and implementing it in in, in the mines. And so now we see this interesting kind of emerging narrative with with China in the United States and somewhat of a uh, hypocritical stance on a lot of these technologies. Um, but this this kind of interesting dynamic is emerging where people are looking at the way uh, uh, China is, in, in my view, just bringing forth a lot of Western ideologies and technologies that were developed and kind of bringing them to their, their logical conclusion. But mm-hmm. you, but you have um, you know China nearby, and they have their social crediting score system. I know there's talk now of of cashless India, and in addition to that, you have um, ten cent cloud centers that are opening in Mumbai. Um, what is your what is your take on uh, the ideological and and you know product uh, influence of of China on the situation, the tech situation in India, um, but also just in general, the role of foreign multinationals in India? So um, one of the big problems is there's not a comprehensive view from government of India about what exactly is their policy on all of this. So Paytm, which was the biggest beneficiary of the demonetization, which we know is a complete failure, um, and caused so much of troubles to regular citizens, has the largest investment from Alibaba's Jack Ma. Um, and uh, uh, India prides itself all the time, or at least used to say, that we are a democracy, China is not a democracy. Don't talk to us uh, in the same terms as China, because we care about our citizens, that's why we are not going to be doing what Chinese do. But what has happened, at least in the past four or five years, is there's a ton of envy which has built up, not only in the political class, but especially the business class to say, hey, India, uh, look at that. Look at how the Chinese government supports all their businesses. They get rid of all the regulation. They don't care about rights anywhere. 
and uh, you just don't support us whether it's the financial policy or it is the tech policy so why don't you do that because that way we can also create homegrown big businesses just like tencent alibaba etc which can compete with the googles and the amazons of the world it's a false narrative they try a lot of things that's what flipkart tried to do before uh, it got bought out by walmart suddenly the nationalism was dropped by flipkart uh, which it was earlier trying to push so um what i would say is there's no comprehensive thing which is coming out of india right now as to what their view is um there is envy uh yet there is enough democracy that people want to push back and say what exactly are you doing because you're neither here nor there um and it's if if we talk about telecom equipment which uh, i don't know how much you believe it but uh, at least cisco has had a very long uh, comprehensive um, campaign in the united states against huawei uh, yeah, for yeah. good or bad reasons and uh, but india does not talk about these things in a comprehensive way it's all it, it's still very um sometimes it's surprising at how naive they sound or um how the discussions are still black and white like until about last year the discussion i was having at some event from a very high official was um national security or privacy and i wanted to say come on this is not 2006 and i am no longer in high school so why are we still talking about in these terms um so i would say um in in contrast to at least a well defined way of uh, how china is operating india is flirting with using the internet to spread um to have surveillance systems to spread um um all kind of propaganda and this is done by all political parties the party in power the major opposition parties that's why you don't see any serious effort in addressing what we now call as fake news or all that is being floating around there is no serious effort coming from india because we have the largest election 2019 mark zuckerberg says in us congress that they are going to do something because india is going for elections but india itself has never talked to them india hasn't had any open hearings on the cambridge analytica uh matter all they did was they they do blow hard grandstanding the minister will make up some very strict statement in the press and then the ceo will fly down and they will hug each other and there will be pictures all over twitter to say oh we met we discussed important issues and then what then nothing so so in, you know in in the in the few minutes we have left here uh, i want to uh, cram a couple of things in here so Western social media platforms are, from what I see in terms of data, dominant. Um, Microsoft and, and, and Accenture are big. Amazon has, from what I saw online, 30% of the Indian e-commerce market. So you know, as the internet becomes bigger and bigger, uh, it's a global system, right? So uh, mm-hmm. the ability to some, – some companies maybe can be kept out with regulations, others not so easily – but then you also have your local tech scene you mentioned bangalore um as being mm-hmm. considered the silicon valley of india so you have this kind of situation where a you have these giant corporations that are 
intent on capturing emerging markets. B, you have a, a local tech scene. But then the question to me becomes, are they just trying to do Silicon Valley? So you have this big data ideology and movement. So one company I have in, in mind here is Reliance Geo, uh, which, correct me if I'm wrong here, gave out uh, free internet and then dirt cheap internet for, for, for mobile data. And yet, mm-hmm. um, from what I see here, their, their long-term monetization strategy is to get granular location-based and real-time views of the users and to just do mass surveillance, right? So, yeah. you know, what do you make of then, A, you have these, these big multinationals, and B, the local tech scene, um, what's to be done about um, trying to, to move forward so that you have a, a tech ecosystem that respects the people rather than something that becomes exploitative? So um, I would say, see, India is is a pretty large market in itself. So, and companies like Reliance Geo, who have complete regulatory capture of the agencies, can do whatever they like. That's why they changed the market completely with the introduction of Reliance Geo. Here's some everything free. What do you want to do now with it? Um, And at such times, the regulators, instead of actually coming and coming up with some regulation about collection of data, they just... Uh, issue papers and drag their feet about everything. Now, Reliance is not thinking of entering the U.S. market or the European market, which it knows will be too cumbersome. I think with India, um, Africa, and Central Asia, they can do a lot more than by trying to even enter these other places. Now, similarly, um, unless somebody, some uh, global player is coming and uh, acquiring the Indian players, there's not um, there's not enough ambition to enter global markets. I don't see talks about Indian companies wanting to take over the world like the Silicon Valley does. I, it's first about India and then the exit strategy. Who's, how are how are we going to get bought by somebody or invested by a large company? Flipkart, such a big company, all it was thinking about is Walmart or someone else. Um, and thankfully, we haven't stopped um, the global giants to enter the Indian market. Um, unlike China, those markets are not close to um, the global mar- global uh, companies. So the ambition, uh, because of the sizes of the other markets, is very different. One of the big things which Indian companies could have done is um, is actually offering products which could protect privacy. India does have the wherewithal. We have a ton of talented software engineers. Uh, we're a big country. We can actually pro- manufacture something which will be an alternative to a Gmail. You can have your email. It, everything is privacy protected. You pay a little bit different. You pay a little bit or you can make products which the consumers will get attracted to. There, there should be a market and there is somewhat of a market for privacy respecting products and India could enter. But I've not heard anybody even trying to do so. Most of the large Indian companies are anyway, even now, other than a few, barring a few are still copycats of the larger successes. So I'm not so sure about um, 
that they're thinking about, oh, our larger market would require us to do more. And let's think about it a little different in terms of policy. It's like, yeah, we're convenient in India and we know how to operate India. So why don't we just play a comfortable game? And Reliance is playing a very predictable game. It did that earlier in mobile phones. Now it knows it can do that in the internet era. So the the, and, um, the internet policy, I mean, I know that there's a strong, uh, at least it appears a strong position taken to affirm net neutrality in India. But at the mm-hmm. same time, you have these, you know, these internet shutdowns. If there was, say, a spread of a lot of encryption technologies, more movement towards decentralization, I have in mind uh, Freedom Box and, and, and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. There's always that, that that prospect of the internet service providers monitoring the traffic and saying this form of traffic that's going through is too anonymity oriented. It's we don't like this because um, now we're we're closing the eyes to the state. We're starting to cut out corporations which have monetized the surveillance and they have a lot of uh, skin in the game. Um, do you trust that the the that if there was a movement towards um, changing and, and this is where we started with you know early in the conversation redesigning technology at, at at the technical architectural level that the ISPs would would or that government policy on, on that would uh, intervene in some way and to start allowing them to try to start blocking those kinds of initiatives. Um, see, we uh, through the crypto wars and even now with all this um, lynching incidents. We've heard the same things coming out of the government is tell us where the messages are in, uh, originating from and WhatsApp crying saying, oh, yeah, this will break our encryption. Don't don't ask us to do anything. I think everybody waltzes around the actual questions here. The companies kill time by saying something. The government officials are not really serious about it. Also say certain things um, and uh, and things move on. So um, how, how um, there was a policy, an encryption policy that um, India had issued, I think in September 2015 or 2016. But there was a big hue and cry because they were saying that plain text messages will have to be detained by all of us so that they could be examined later on. So I don't think that we have an actually comprehen- comprehensive encryption policy in India. Again, as I said the the thinking is very ad hoc. It's if you think about one issue at a time and you don't think about the comprehensive issues, then you will come up with ad hoc thinking. And policies will only address one issue. But I do think that there will be resistance, definitely so from the ISPs and the companies who are building these products, uh, as there should be. But that does not mean that. Um, uh, the regulators are not going to try to get whatever they want. And in India also, there is a lot of tendency to, to try to get access extrajudicially to information. And because um, a reliance geo will crawl when asked to bend, that's why India usually has problems not with its local ISPs or local grown companies, but it has problems with the foreign grown ones who for one reason or the other, actually not by design, but became the bastions of protecting um, whether it was privacy or free speech, mostly by saying to the government that show us the law, why we are supposed to give you all of this. And the government was like, 
what do you mean show us the law you're the government you need to do whatever we're asking you to do and that would spill over into political censorship takedowns um collection of data everything so um yes there will be definitely resistance um right now the products are much smaller freedom boxes um a lot of um, development has happened in fact from uh, hyderabad uh, a state which is under almost complete state surveillance um but um, resistance comes out of places where there is obviously more oppression so um i i think we'll see more of all of this everywhere else in the world and so india is not going to remain untouched by it yeah so time will tell well time will only tell us that there will be more of pushback from all sides and uh, the citizen is um, or or the people are just left to uh, watch how their rights are being stripped off uh, just the same way as uh, everybody's fighting about climate change and not really thinking about that the heat wave and what's happening today is where the poorest people suffer and we all rich people will find the ways to get out of this also it's like at&t saying for 29 dollars buy my services where we will not collect your data yeah right right and it's like it's offensive and um also it's just the the practices of of the big data industry is is it's extreme and it just keeps getting more extreme so to me it's 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 ripe for you know people calling the whole thing into question it, that's what that's my position on it um yeah and trying to figure out a way to 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 get there um but all right mishi thank you so much for for coming on the show and um i hope you enjoy the rest of your day and and you know i'll i'll keep tuned into the k- kinds of things that that you're working on thank you for having me and uh, your time and uh, i hope to keep talking and uh, knowing more about the stuff you were doing okay awesome thank you so much take care bye bye okay bye bye